This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Listen while the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, private detective. This is your Rexall family druggist with a welcome from the 10,000 independent druggists who have made the word Rexall part of our own store names. We've done that because we recommend and sell the 2,000 or more drug products made by the Rexall Drug Company. Like Rexall Milk of Magnesia, for example. Here's the milk of magnesia that's so pure and creamy smooth, so free from that unpleasant earthy taste, even children spot the difference. Ask for the Rexall Milk of Magnesia at Rexall drugstores everywhere. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Now your Rexall family druggist brings you a transcribed half hour with Richard Diamond, private detective, starring Dick Powell. I'm a detective agency. With camels who know their detectives best, it's diamond two to one. Ricky? I won't admit a thing. Last person who called me Ricky saw me stocking a bubblegum factory. Whole deal blew right up in my face. Ricky, this is Pat. I'm in trouble, bad trouble. Somebody steal your last name? This is Pat Sten. Pat Sten. An old friend of several years standing. Blonde, attractive, and the owner of a plan to eliminate cranium luster. To the aging juveniles of the world's biggest city, she might easily be called the mother protector of hairline. In other words, like the sign says in the front of her uptown salon, she grows hair. You've just got to come down to the place. Honey, I've graduated. You told me so yourself. Another treatment and I'll be wearing a snood. Ricky, I'm on the level. I'm in trouble. Something's happened to one of my customers. What's the matter? Did he sprout feathers? Well, almost. He sprouted wings. He's dead. <laughs> Now, phone games with Pat weren't a hobby. She might kid a customer about the condition of his scalp, but when she called me to say she had a corpse on her hands, I knew she hadn't been sampling her hair tonic. I told her I'd be right down, call Helen, broke my date, locked the office, set a few traps for impatient clients, and 15 minutes later, I was in Pat's office talking to a pretty frightened little blonde. Oh, Rick, I just don't know what to do. Oh, now, honey, first calm down. Now, who's dead and where? A man named Wiley. John Wiley's on the vibrating table. Why didn't you call a doctor or the police? Because I think he's been murdered. Murdered? Looks like his neck's been broken. I didn't know what to do. I was afraid of calling the police. Well, baby, if one of your customers got his neck broken in here, you're going to get mixed up with the law sooner or later anyway. The publicity will ruin my business. Honey, murder always ruins something. You got any idea who might have done it? No. Well, who was in the place when you discovered the body? My usual three girls and two customers. Anybody leave or come in? No. How many people know about it? Just the girls. Neither one of the customers. Oh. Well, first we lock your front door. I don't want anyone to leave. Then we'll take a look at the dead man and find out if his neck really is broken. If it is, we call homicide. We locked the front door and Pat let me down a hall with booze on either side. 
In two of the booths, I spotted the customers relaxing as girls in white uniforms worked on their receding foreheads. At the end of the hall, we stopped at another booth, enclosed by a white curtain. In there, Rick. Okay. The vibrating table was centered in the middle of the room, an enclosure about six by 14 feet. The table was built at an angle, so that when a patient climbed up and stretched out on his back, his feet were elevated a good 16 inches above his head. The angle and the vibration increased the flow of blood to the scalp, and under normal conditions, it's considered very healthy. But the man lying on the table now wasn't getting the full benefit of the treatment. His shoulders extended over the end of the table, leaving his head hanging down at a grotesque angle, rolling from side to side with the monotonous rhythm of the vibration. Oh, Rick. Not very pretty, huh? I forgot to turn the table off. I think I'm going to faint. Just take it easy. Is I right? You had to be. A circus rubber man would need vulcanizing if he turned his head that far. Busted neck, all right. Guess we better call the police. Can you keep the customers out of here? What if one of them gets inquisitive? Tell them the table's out of order. I'm going to call homicide and tell them Mr. John Wiley's in the same condition. As frightened as she was, Pat played it pretty well. She tipped off the girls and started swapping jokes with her balding clients to keep them happy. I went in the office, put in a fast call to the 5th Precinct Homicide, and ten minutes later, Lieutenant Walt Levinson and Otis, his trained anthropoid, were looking at the late John Wiley. Sure looks like murder. I guess it would be better if he had a knife in his chest with a sign on it. Who was in the place when it happened? Pat, three girls, two customers, and a dozen assorted gauges. Oh, for Pete's sake. Pete has an alibi. What was the dead man doing on the table, anyway? Trying to grow hair. Oh, that's silly. Who ever heard of anybody growing hair on a table? <laughs> Sergeant Lovelone. Well, I thought it was pretty funny. Go out and round up everybody in the place and take them into the office. Then call the precinct and get the coroner down here. Then, if you're a good little boy, you can go out and play in the traffic. Well, a murder is a mess any way you look at it. A man lying on a table with his neck broken. Four women and two men, the only ones around when it happened. Bad publicity for a nice little working gal named Pat Stenz. But you can't hide it when it happens. Someone gets killed, someone gets hunted. And everybody concerned gets mixed up in it. Walt herded everyone into the office and the questioning started. The men were very unhappy. That bad publicity it couldn't be helped. Mr. Robert Wells, songwriter. Look, I don't know anything about it. I never saw the man before. Surely you can't possibly suspect me. Why in the world would I want to kill him? It's ridiculous. And the other, Mr. Jacob Green, jeweler. Oh, my goodness. My head is still wet. John Wiley? I never saw him before in my life. Not in my whole life. Hey, Pat, give me another towel, will you? Kill him? For why? I got a mother-in-law. First things come first. Yes. Now, <laughs> uh, you see? You see? My death I'll catch from Jersey. Two prosperous men, two prosperous denials. The girls came next. Three girls who worked for Pat. First, Mary Carroll, the girl who had worked on John Wiley. The one who had helped him up on the table and massaged his neck and forehead for five minutes. Sure, I put him on the table, but I left him, like always. We let them lie in there and relax for about ten minutes, don't we, Pat? That's right, Lieutenant. That's the way it works. Mary left him and went over to start on Mr. Wells. That's right, Lieutenant. She did. Mary's a pretty strong girl, isn't she, Mr. Wells? 
Yeah, she could break... Break your neck? Oh, now, wait a minute, Lieutenant. You think she could, Mr. Wells? She's pretty strong, I guess, but she wouldn't do that. Any one of us could have gone in that back booth at one time or another, Lieutenant. You found him, didn't you, Miss Stenz? Yes. Do you usually go back to see how your customers are? Sometimes. Sometimes they go to sleep and the girl who left them is too busy with someone else, so I wake them up. Next girl, Lillian Wooster. Yes, I went back by that booth several times. Why? Wants to make Mr. Green some coffee. You're black and strong. She brought it to me. And the other times? Wants to get some hair for me, or later to get a clean comb. A clean comb for him? Don't laugh. I got a few left. Look, it up here on top, you see? You're fairly new here, aren't you, Lillian? Three weeks. How'd you know that, Rick? Well, I completed my treatments last month. Lillian wasn't here then. You mean you... <laughs> now, now, now. People laugh at psychiatrists, too, Walt, and some of them end up playing canasta with Lady Macbeth. We were rejuvenating his spit curls. Thank you, Patricia Stenz. They've been spitting better than ever. All right, all right. You, you're the last girl. What's your name? Nancy Cummings, Lieutenant. The last girl in her story was no different than the others. Yes, she had left her customer and walked down the hall past the last booth. No, she had not slipped in and popped Mr. John Wiley's neck while he lay resting. The coroner arrived and the whole party went down to the precinct to sign formal statements. They were then all released and sent home, pending further investigation. I took Pat home to her apartment. Don't you drink, Rick? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Water? Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't kill him, did you, Pat? Don't be silly. He's growing hair. Kill off my advertising? Here. Thanks. You got any ideas, Rick? No. How long has John Wiley been coming to the shop? Oh, about six months. What do you know about him? Not much. He's a wolf. By your standards or Kenzie's? He got grabby occasionally. Put him straight. Know what business he was in? Well, whatever it was, he had a lot of money. Big tipper. Oh, excuse me. Yes. Oh, yes, just a minute, Lieutenant. See you, Rick. Thanks. Hello, Fatty. I got something on the dead man. Got a record. Blackmail. Oh? Know where he lived? We're checking. Now, wait a minute. Pat, you wouldn't by any chance know where John Wiley lived, would you? Well, I sent a bill to him every month. I've got a duplicate set of books here in the apartment. I'll uh, get the address. Well, Pat's got his address. I found something else in his personal effects. Key to a safety deposit box. Otis is checking to find out which bank. Well, we should at least have the answer by doomsday. Here's the address, Rick. John Wiley, 709 East 45th Street. I told Walt I'd meet him at Wiley's place, down my drink, gave Pat a pat, and a half hour later we were tearing Mr. John Wiley's apartment to pieces. Nothing. No? Well, I, uh, I at least turned up a kazoo, grab a comb and some tissue paper, and we'll do a fast course of Swanee. Hey. No tissue paper? No, here's a date calendar. Good, good. Maybe we've been working on a holiday. Here's a name, Nancy. That comes after April, doesn't it? Same name on some of the other pages. Here, the 28th, Nancy, 6 o'clock. Again on the 22nd, Nancy, 8 o'clock. Again on the 18th and, and, and the 12th. Hey, one of the girls who works at Pat's is named Nancy. Yeah, I know it. Well, do you think we should go over and see her or sit down around a card table, hold hands and make her pop out of the wall? You know, someday I'm going to get very mad at you, Rick. Only when you find somebody prettier. Come on, Grouchy, let's go over and see Nancy Cummings. 
to her apartment. She lives with that new girl. Lenny Wooster? Yeah, and stop flexing your claws. Who is it? Uh, please. Yep, open up or we'll huff and we'll puff and we'll... My, what big noises you make, Grandma. The better to scare the men out of your closet, my dear. We'd like to talk to you, Miss Cummings. Certainly, Lieutenant. Come in. I was just making some lemonade. Would you like some? Oh, thanks. It's pretty hot out. Maybe you'd like something stronger? Uh, lemonade's fine. I- I'm on duty. Uh, he's on duty. You better give him some torpedo juice. Miss Cummings, uh, you didn't tell us that you had dated John Wiley. Would you like the lemonade, sweet lieutenant? Uh, medium. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. never asked me if I dated John Wiley. The lieutenant found your name written on Wiley's date book. I've been out with him six or seven times, I think. You know what his business was? He never discussed it. Ever meet any of his friends? No. Did he ever mention any of the other girls in the shop? No, I don't think so. Hmm. You, uh, you live with Lillian Wooster, don't you? That's right. Hmm. Hey, who's, uh, whose picture is that on the piano? Lillian's father. You still don't have any idea why anyone would want to kill Wiley? No. How did Lillian Wooster happen to move in with you? I asked her to. When she went to work for Pat, she was living in a terrible place. One small room. I told her she could come in with me and share the rent. Well, how well did she know John Wiley? She'd seen him at the shop, seen him here when he came to pick me up. Where's Lillian now? Shopping, I think. Well, thanks, Miss Cummings. We'll be talking with you again. More lemonade? Or later, maybe, when things start getting a little hotter. Before we continue with the adventures of Richard Diamond, private detective, here's your Rexall family druggist. Here's an important fact about Rexall aspirin I'd like you listeners to remember. It's simply this. There's no faster-acting aspirin made. But what do you mean by fast-acting? Well, ma'am, aspirin itself is too fine to hold together in tablet form, so it has to be bound with an ingredient that will quickly disintegrate, that is, break up the tablet so the aspirin itself will immediately be free to do its job. Well, you mean the aspirin can't go to work until the tablet breaks up? Exactly. And that's why Rexall scientists developed a binder so low in moisture content, it begins to break up the very second it touches water. Now, that means that when swallowed with water, the five full grains of pure aspirin in every Rexall aspirin tablet are ready to go to work for you even before they reach your stomach. Well, that's fast enough for me. And it's fast enough for 10,000 family druggists, too. Quality like that is what we're talking about when we tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. And now back to tonight's adventure with Richard Diamond, private detective starring Dick Powell. Three in the afternoon, out of Nancy's cool apartment and down in the blistering street. The thermometer crowding ninety, and the humidity sticking to us like a steaming blanket. I feel awful. A terrible day to solve a murder. Yeah. I want to go look through some newspaper files. What for? That picture on the piano. Lillian Worcester's father? Mm-hmm. I've seen that someplace before. News story connected with it. I'll drop you off. I got to get back and see if Otis has found the safety deposit box that fits John Wiley's key. <laughs> Walt dropped me off at the newspaper, and I went down to the morgue file to do some hunting. The air conditioning made the job easier, and by four o'clock, I walked into Walt's office with an interesting bit of information. We found the bank and the safety deposit box. Oh, anything turn up? Wiley was doing some pretty fancy blackmailing. Here's a bundle of evidence and a list of names. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, 
Well, I can understand why someone would pay to keep these out of circulation. Lousy photography. Uh, what did you find out? Well, uh, here. Newspaper clippings. Mm-hmm. Oh. Picture of Lillian Wister's father. Same picture as the, the one on the piano. Ah, prominent banker leaps to death. William Baker. William Baker? The girl's name is Worcester. That's what she calls herself. William Banker. Give me that list we got out of the deposit box. I've just been looking at it. William Baker's name is on here, all right. That clipping I just gave you mentions that he left a daughter and a wife. Well, let's go pick up Lillian Worcester or Baker or whatever her name is. Well, it might not have meant a thing, but at least we had found one person who had a strong connection with John Wiley other than socially. The girl who called herself Lillian Wooster was the daughter of one William Baker, deceased, and one of John Wiley's blackmail victims. We climbed to the squad car and hurried back to Nancy Cummings' apartment where Lillian Wooster lived as roommate. Let's go. Hey, hey, wait a minute. What's wrong? Hold it. Lillian Wooster coming out of the building. All right, we pick her up on the street. Uh, the doorman's hailing a cab for her. Let's see where she's going. Wouldn't it be easier to just ask her? Oh, stop trying to ruin my afternoon. There's nothing more relaxing than the pleasant drive through quiet, peaceful little old Manhattan. We started tailing Lillian Wooster's cab across town, along the river, and across the George Washington Bridge. She's headed for Jersey. Ah, oh, you looked at your compass. That's not fair. We kept going through Hackensack, past the outskirts, and on out Route 17. Pretty expensive cab ride. Pretty expensive. It makes it pretty important. We kept following like that. Lillian's cab a good quarter of a mile ahead so she wouldn't notice us. They're turning off on that road. Oh, you're absolutely amazing, Fatty. I probably would have missed it completely. Oh! We took the road to the right off the highway and spotted the cab up ahead, pulling into the entrance of a large white building. The sign over the tall iron gate read, Woodview Sanitarium. She's getting out of the cab and going in. Uh, wait till she gets inside. Then let's go up there and find out who Lillian Wooster is visiting in the Woodview Sanitarium. Yeah? Something I can do for you? I'm looking for a girl. You know, honey, something that doesn't look like a man. Now you stay out of this, Diamond. Don't you start getting me confused again. He gets confused? At the drop of a hat. Watch, I'll drop my hat. Now, you stop that. He doesn't like it, does he? Oh, it nearly drives him with... <clears throat> now, you, you understand. Yes, of course. Where are you going? I think you better talk with Dr. Gerson. All right, run him out. Temper, 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 temper. Rick, I swear, if you don't stop these confounded routines... The routines? Well, you know what I'm talking about. Who's on first base? Oh, don't you know who's on first? Huh? I'm Dr. Gerson. Uh, my friend here is given to uh, mass demonstrations in the aisle. Oh, shut up, Rick. I'm Lieutenant Levinson. I'll bet you're with the cavalry. You get wise with me, Mac, and I'll bust you one. Extreme persecution complex ever since Uncle Julius took away his mandolin. Well, we have some lovely mandolins here, Lieutenant. I am Lieutenant Levinson, New York Police. Now, 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 it's more fun in the cavalry. Maybe you'd think it was more fun in a cell. Well, it's wonderful. We have some very nice ones. Let me show you. Now, listen, I am Lieutenant Levinson, New York Police, 5th Precinct Homicide. And if you don't lay off this foolishness, help me, I'll tear you limb from limb. I'll get some help. You won't get anybody. Get away from that phone. Look, I I, I think you better uh, 
Let him tell you why he's here. Will it calm him down? I'm here trying to catch a girl. A wreck. That's right. He's here trying to catch a girl. Certainly. Why don't we all try and catch one? Look, would you do me a favor, friend? Why, of course, Lieutenant. Take a look at those credentials. Certainly. Oh, my goodness. I'm afraid he's a real policeman. I need no help from you, Mr. Diamond. Grouchy. Oh, my goodness. Satisfied? Well, yes. Aren't you a little out of your territory, Lieutenant? I am not making an arrest. <laughs> Just trying to catch a girl. I am following a girl. She may be a murderer. She came in here a few minutes you ago. You mean Miss Baker? Then Baker is her right name? Who's she seeing? Her mother. What's wrong with her mother? Mrs. Baker is seriously ill. Have anything to do with her husband's suicide? Everything to do with it? I doubt Mrs. Baker will ever recover. We went back out of the car and tried to put it all together. Lillian's father had jumped off a roof. He was being blackmailed and couldn't take it. The shock had driven Mrs. Baker into a permanent breakdown. And John Wiley had been responsible for the whole thing. Motive enough for Lillian to get a job with Pat Sten so she could get her hands on John Wiley's neck. We waited until Lillian's cab turned out of the driveway and headed back for New York. We stayed close, watched her get off at her apartment. Then we went over to see Pat Sten's. You going to get a hair treatment tomorrow, Rick? That's right, honey. I, I want you to be sure that Lillian takes care of me. Did she do it, Rick? I, uh, I think so. But why? She seemed like such a nice girl. Well, she had a pretty good reason. But we need a confession, and Rick's got an idea how to get it. I want Lillian working on me through the whole treatment. Especially when I get on the vibrating table. Your scalp looks pretty good, Mr. Diamond. Oh, it's been itching a little. Uh-huh. Losing any? Mm, some. Hi. Oh, hello, Pat. His hair looks pretty good, Miss Stan. Let's see. Hmm. Um, use both solutions. Okay. I'll see you later, Rick. Nice girl, Pat. Very nice. Have you found out anything about Mr. Wiley's death? Oh, the police have gone to see our news. The lieutenant wants to see your roommate. As you told me. I hope you don't suspect her. She rather liked Mr. Wiley. She wouldn't have any reason to kill him. All right. Let's go down to the uh, other booth. Uh, you mean uh, you're going to stick me on that vibrating table? Not if you don't want to. Well, full treatment. That's what I came here for. Let's go. You don't mind going in there, do you? No, why should I? Oh, some people are funny about rooms where a murder's been committed. It doesn't bother me, Mr. Diamond. Give him a good rub and let him relax for about ten minutes, Lily. Yes, Miss Sins. All right, up on your back. Side down, though, please. Uh, all right, yeah. Okay. What did you do before you went to work for Pat, Lillian? Oh, not much. Went to school. Finally decided to look for a job and found this one. Ever study this sort of thing? No, there's really not much to it. Pat shows us how to wash, apply the formulas, and rub the neck and shoulders. And all you need is a strong pair of arms, huh? I guess so. Your family live in New York? No. Oh, I noticed the picture of your father on Nancy's piano. Fine-looking man. He's dead now. Sorry. 
So am I. Mother still living? No. Oh, Al. Oh. I'm sorry. Am I rubbing too hard? It's okay. It's okay. Well, you've got the strength for the job. Did the police find out anything about Mr. Wiley? Yeah. He was a blackmailer. Ouch. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I'm a little nervous today. Maybe I'd better get one of the other girls. Oh, no, no, no. That's okay. I'll just, just a little tied up. Next step. Yeah. Kind of right. I guess I keep thinking about Wiley and his broken neck. Think I might break yours, Mr. Diamond? Well, it wouldn't be hard. If I was good and relaxed, you could snap it in a minute. I guess I could. So Mr. Wiley was a blackmailer? Yeah. I had a record. They're the foulest people on earth. They certainly are. You think he was blackmailing someone here in the shop? Well, not... Not necessarily. Well, if he wasn't, then no one in the shop would have a motive for killing him. Well, I've got a theory about that. I think someone in the shop hated him so much they waited until no one was looking and the girl was out of this booth. And they slipped in on him and twisted his neck until it broke. Why would they hate him that much if he wasn't blackmailing them? Oh, somebody else he might have blackmailed. Someone very close and dear to the killer. Maybe the person while he was blackmailing couldn't stand it and committed suicide. Interesting theory. Take your family, for instance. Ouch. Sorry. You weren't relaxing. Uh, supposing Wiley was blackmailing a member of your family, your father, for instance. I can't rub your neck unless you relax more. Maybe your father couldn't take it. Maybe he couldn't pay him anymore. And instead of disgracing his family, he committed suicide. Just turn your head a little to the side, Mr. Diamond. Better? Much. Well, if that happened to my family, Mr. Diamond, I guess I'd kill Mr. Wiley and not mind it a bit. Think of the shark. I even put the wife in a sanitarium. It probably would. But how did your father die, Lillian? He jumped off the roof. Now, if you'll turn your head a little more, I'll try to pop your vertebra. Uh... We followed you out to Jersey yesterday, Lillian. I'm going to adjust your neck, Mr. Diamond. It's better if you relax so it won't hurt. Well, if you wanted to, you could pop it anyway. I couldn't stop you in time. I don't guess you could. There. Now the other side. No. Did you kill John Wiley? Yes. Relax. (laughs) All right, Let's go down to the police station. Again, here's your Rexall family druggist. If you're looking for a way to save money on drugstore needs, buy Rexall MI-31, the triple action antiseptic that makes an ideal mouthwash, a soothing gargle, and an effective breath deodorant. What's more, Rexall gives you a full pint of this quality product at the same price as other leading brands of smaller quantity. Ask for Rexall MI-31 at any Rexall drugstore. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Richard
Richard Diamond, Private Detective, stars Dick Powell in the title role and is written by Blake Edwards with music composed and conducted by Frank Worth. Featured in tonight's cast were Mary Jane Croft, Ted DeCorsia, Wilms Herbert, Virginia Gregg, B. Benaderet, and Larry Dobkin. Richard Diamond, Private Detective, is transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. This is Bill Foreman inviting you to be with us next Wednesday at this time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Hiya, beautiful. Get lost, Bristlepuss. You need a shave. But I have shaved. What else do you want me to do? Silly boy, she wants you to go stag. Go stag? But why? Because Stag is Rexall's exclusive line of men's good grooming aids, like Stag Brushless Shave Cream. No fuss, no massage, just smooth it on, and presto, you get a clean, close shave. Your face stays smooth and whiskerless all day long. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go Stag. That's it. Join the Stag line now at Rexall drugstores everywhere. Yes, to make girls care, go Stag. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet on both radio and television. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A 39-year-old housewife disappears suddenly. There's no explanation for it. Five days later, evidence of possible foul play is uncovered. Your job, investigate. Fatima, America's first largest-selling blended cigarette. Now, best of all king-size cigarettes. Prove it yourself today. Compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. One, Fatima's length filters the smoke 85 millimeters for your protection. Two, Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Three, Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs, 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And in Fatima, you get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Definitely the best quality in its class. But the same price as the cigarette you are now smoking. Buy Fatima in the bright, sunny yellow pack. Best of all king-size cigarettes. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, September 15th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ed Jacobs. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from lunch, and it was 12.56 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Joe. Waiting for you. Hi, Ed. Al, here you got something for us, huh? Mm-hmm. Here's the report right here. 
Gardner by the name of Abbott called in day before yesterday. Chester Abbott said his wife disappeared from their home out in the valley Thursday night. He says he thinks she left him. Well, it happens every day. Not this way, it doesn't. Walsh and I went out to talk to the man yesterday. His story doesn't make too much sense. I mean now. None of his wife's clothes are missing, none of her luggage. She even left her pocketbook behind, full of money. We found out from the neighbors the missing woman has a 17-year-old boy by a former marriage. Does that mean anything? Well, he's an only child. Mother dotes on the kid. She didn't even say goodbye to him. Well, how'd this Chester Abbott impress you? Pretty grouchy with Walsh and me. No cooperation. Wants to find his wife, doesn't he? I don't know. I'm not sure. He's no help, I can tell you that much. Could I see that report out? Yeah, here you are. Thank you. Florence Trumbull Abbott, age 39. Abbott's her second husband. First one died a little after the boy was born. Mm-hmm. Disappeared Thursday night from the home, 546 Belasco Road, between 7 and 8 o'clock. Well, when did Abbott call in to notify you? Monday afternoon. Told us he thought his wife might have been spending the weekend with her sister. When he found out she wasn't, he called us. Mm-hmm. You meet the boy when you were out there? Yeah, that's another thing. How do you mean? The kid came riding up on a bike when we were talking to one of the neighbors. We tried to talk to him, but the old man came out and hustled the boy into the house. Then he started showing us out. Well, what's his trouble? He told us it was our job to find his wife, not to go prying into his stepson's affairs. Mm-hmm. That's a new slant. Well, how about the woman's friends and relatives? They've been checked out, you know? Walsh is on it now. Don't think he's had much luck contacting him so far. I'll tell you the truth, I don't like the looks of it. Mm. Mrs. Abbott have any other relatives here? I mean, besides a sister and two aunts? Yeah, I got the list right over here. Sure wish we had a chance to talk to that boy. Notice anything else out of the way about Mr. Abbott, Al? Well, I don't know. Here's that list, Joe. Oh, thank you. Abbott was upset all right. I don't know, though. He didn't exactly strike me as reacting the way a normal man reacts when his wife's disappeared. Well, how about a copy of this report? You got one to spare? Yeah, sure. Just a minute. Yeah. Missing persons, Bargetti. That's right. This is Bargetti speaking. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. About what? All right, good. Four o'clock? Fine. All right, son. Goodbye. That was the boy I was telling you about, Mr. Abbott's stepson. What do you want? He wants to talk to us, sounded worried. About his mother? He thinks something's happened to her. In police work, missing persons detail is not a department separate in itself. It's organized as a part of homicide division. When the possibility of homicide arises in the course of handling a case, missing persons immediately turns the matter over to homicide officers for investigation. When we got the call from the Abbott boy, we automatically took over. According to Al Bargetti, the boy said he suspected his stepfather and he didn't want him to know of any meeting between him and police officers. At 3.15, Ed and I left the office and drove to the meeting place designated by the boy, the Dairyland Fountain and Coffee Shop near the corner of Fairfax and Hollywood Boulevard. We got there at 3.50 p.m. At 8 minutes past 5, the Abbott boy still had not arrived. We waited another 15 minutes and then we left and drove out to the valley and pulled up in front of the main gate to the Abbott Nursery on Belasco Road. The house itself was set well back on the property, which covered about five acres of ground. The entire nursery was surrounded by a six-foot chain-link fence, and it looked like every available foot of ground inside was planted with some kind of flower or shrub. Mr. Abbott met us at the gate. He had three full-grown mastiffs with him. He held them on a chain. Yes, what do you want? Police officers. You Chester Abbott? That's right. What do you want? Well, if you can get those dogs quiet for a moment, we'd like to ask you some questions. Pretty busy now. Can you come back tomorrow? No, it's important, Abbott. We'd like to talk to you now. All right, if you have to. Best time. Get down there. You two go. Quiet. I said quiet. All right. Now, what do you want? Mind if we come inside, sir? These what? Dogs of mine are pretty vicious. We can talk here at the gate. All right. We've been assigned to look into your wife's disappearance, Abbott. This is my partner, Sergeant Jacobs. My name's Friday. 
Mm-hmm. Find out anything about my wife yet? Nothing definite, no. Thought maybe you could help us. Mind telling us exactly what happened the night she disappeared? What do you mean, what happened? Well, when did you see her last? When did you first notice she was gone? Well, we had dinner Thursday night about 7 o'clock, then I laid down for a nap. Florence went out on the front porch for some air. I woke up a little before 8 o'clock, went outside to look for her. She was gone. No one saw her leave, Mr. Abbott? Not that I know of. Maybe one of our neighbors, you can ask them. They seem to know everybody's business. How about your stepson? Wasn't he home Thursday night? Bruce? No, he went out to a show with some other kids. When did he get back from the show, you remember? About 10 o'clock, I think. Why? Where's the boy now, Abbott? Who are you looking for, my wife or stepson? Both of them. Where is he? Gone. I took him over to my sister's in Alhambra. He'd been feeling bad since his mother disappeared. Figured the change to do him good. Well, when did you take him over to your sister's? This afternoon. What's that got to do with it? I'd like to talk to him. No, you can't. You won't allow it. The boy's too upset right now, and I can't allow it. I'm afraid you're going to have to allow it, Abbott. Listen, mister. You can get off this property right now if you're going to get fresh with me. No cops giving me any sass. Get down there, honey. Quiet. Nobody's giving you sass. We want to talk to your stepson, that's all. He might be able to give us a lead on the whereabouts of your wife. And I say you can't see the boy. You've been looking for Florence for a week, and you haven't found a thing. I'll get somebody else to look for her. It's my business anyway, nobody else's. It's our business if anything happened to her. What are you talking about? You better get your coat, Abbott. I'd like to talk to you downtown. Come through that gate and I'll let these dogs go. We'd hate to shoot them, mister. What are you trying to prove anyhow? What do I have to go downtown for? I'll tell you when we get there and I'll get your coat. Chester Abbott turned, made his way up the path and into the house. A few minutes later, he came out, closed the gate behind him and got into our car. On the way back downtown, he talked pleasantly about the weather, the nursery business and his dogs. When we got to the office, we found out the reason for his sudden change in temperament. His lawyer was waiting for us at the door. We tried to interrogate Abbott, but the lawyer objected to just about every question we asked. It was hopeless, and we knew it, and so did the lawyer. We released Abbott, but not before we got the name and address of his sister in Alhambra, where the stepson, Bruce, was supposedly staying. After Abbott and his lawyer left, Ed and I signed out of the office and drove to Alhambra to check on the boy. Forgetty sure had this one pegged. Real sleeper. Yeah. Like to know how the stepson missed that date with us this afternoon. If the boy called us from the house, stepfather could have overheard him. That's possible. Sister's house ought to be along this block, shouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Let's see. 1408, 06, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Great Cottage, 1402. Okay, let's pull up here. All right. Nice looking place, well kept, huh? Mm -hmm. Nice neighborhood. Wonder how the lot prices run out here. I don't know. I'll get the bell. Yes, what is it? Police officers, ma'am. You Miss Abbott? Yes, Helen Abbott. Why? Well, we talked to your brother earlier today, Miss Abbott. He said he brought his stepson, Bruce, over here to stay a while. We'd like to see him if we could. Bruce? Well, yes, he was here until about an hour and a half ago. I went to the store, and when I came back, he was gone. You any idea where we can find him, Miss Abbott? Well, I telephoned my brother, Chester, just before you came to the door. Bruce isn't there. Yes, ma'am. Do you mind if we came in and looked around, Miss Abbott? It won't take long. Well, why? I told you Bruce isn't here. It's the truth. There's no reason to lie about it, is there? Oh, no, ma'am. It's not that. Well, then what is it? No reason for me to lie to you. How about your brother? We went in and looked the house over from one end to the other. There wasn't a trace of the boy. We drove back to the Abbott nursery and satisfied ourselves the boy wasn't there. Meantime, the home of Chester Abbott's sister in Alhambra was kept under constant surveillance. No one came or went. The next morning, when Ed and I checked in for work as usual at 8 a.m., we met with Sergeant Al Bargetti. Well, I had half an idea there might be something wrong. What makes you so positive, though? It's just it, Al. We're not positive. It's the whole setup, I guess, smells bad. How do you mean, for instance? Well, Abbott's lawyer, for one thing. If a man's innocent, he doesn't have his lawyer sit with him and tell him not to answer any questions. Yeah. Number two, the kid's phone call. He didn't show up for that date. You figure. I don't know. Could be he doesn't get along with his stepfather. Happens, you know. Maybe he's trying to get back at him for something or other. Well, that could be. Why is Abbott hiding him out, then? 
Pretty sure he's hiding him off? The way things been going, another way to take it. Huh. Mrs. Abbott walked away from her home last Thursday night. Nobody saw her. She took nothing with her. No luggage, no clothes, no money. That's it. You checked with her family doctor? Yesterday. Told us Mrs. Abbott was in perfect health. Checked her bank statements. Double-checked the name for Wanderer's file. Repeaters found missing persons. Couldn't find it in either one. Her relatives, too. How you talked to them? Some of them, yeah, Al. Got a few more to check out this morning. Well, well, one thing's certain. No clothes, no money, no luggage. She couldn't have gone very far. You checked all the angles, huh? Well, the sheriff's office, the jails, the hospitals. Sent out a teletype and an APV. She's been gone almost a week and nobody's seen her. Now, how's that add up to you? Well, they got an idea. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong. 8.45 a.m. Ed and I left the office and continued making the rounds of the missing woman's friends and relatives. We checked at the Western National Bank where Mrs. Abbott maintained another account. Her savings statement showed a total balance of $31,564.17. Her checking account had a balance of $842.71. At the Farmer's Mutual, we found the record of an insurance policy issued to Florence Trumbull Abbott. It was a 20-pay life policy covering the insured in the amount of $30,000. The beneficiary was listed as the insured son, Bruce Trumbull Abbott, if living upon receipt of such due proof, if not, the insured's husband, Chester J. Abbott. By the time we finished checking the missing woman's financial status, we figured we had a fair suspect in the husband, Chester Abbott. From casual reports, we knew he was a frugal man, almost to the point of obsession. If he was greedy as well, if he wanted or needed money badly enough to kill, then he had all the motives necessary to murder his wife. Maybe his stepson, too. 6.40 p.m., Ed and I drove back to the office. Go ahead. Long day. A lot of mileage. Yeah. Wonder if Al's still around. Hey, Bargetti. Al? Yeah, here. That you, Friday? Yeah. How'd you do? Get anything? A few things. Pretty fair luck. Good. I got some more for you. Just walked in here ten minutes ago. Who's there? Bruce Abbott. He's waiting in the next room. We went into the next room and met the Abbott boy. He was small for a 17-year-old, dark-haired, thin, a little on the sickly side. He seemed nervous and upset. He told us that he wasn't able to keep the date he made with us on the phone because his stepfather did apparently overhear the conversation and drove the boy immediately to his sister's place in Alhambra. We asked the boy what made him so sure that his stepfather was responsible for his mother's disappearance. Well, for one thing, all three of us usually go to the early show on Thursday night, Chester, Mom, and me. But last Thursday, we didn't go. Why was that, son? Chester said he wasn't feeling too good and he wanted Mom to stay home and take care of him. Then he told me to go on ahead to the show, so I did. What time did you get home, Bruce? About a quarter to ten, ten o'clock. Did you notice anything unusual when you got home, son? Not so much, no. Mom wasn't there. I didn't think much about it then. I thought maybe she was over to one of the neighbors. You asked your stepfather where she was? Uh-huh. He said he didn't know. He said he thought she was over at one of the neighbors, too. What was your stepfather doing when he got home? Just sitting in the living room reading the paper. I usually don't talk to him too much. I just asked him where Mom was, and he told me, and then I went back to my room and went to bed. Did you notice anything unusual about the way he acted? Anything different about him at all? Well, I'm not too sure. He did seem a little nervous, though. Jumpy. More than usual, I think. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Well, when I came through the front yard, I noticed the dogs had mud all over their paws. Red, Jaime, and George, all three of them. They must have been out in the nursery plots. Anything unusual about that? In a way, yeah. You see, the dogs don't go out in the plots unless Chester's with them. He doesn't want them to trample the seedlings. I noticed Chester had mud on his shoes that night, too. And you figure your stepfather was out digging somewhere in the nursery plots that night, huh? Yeah, that's right. Digging somewhere. He must have been. Can't figure out why, though. Well, how do you mean, son? My stepfather never works at night. You 
are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. One, Fatima's length filters the smoke 85 millimeters for your protection. Two, Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Three, Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs, 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And in Fatima, you get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. To show our confidence in Fatima, we make this money-back guarantee to every king-size cigarette smoker. Buy a pack of Fatimas. Enjoy Fatima quality, extra mildness, and superbly blended tobaccos. If you're not convinced Fatima is better than the king-size cigarette you're now smoking, just return the pack and the unsmoked Fatimas before August 1st, 1952, and we'll give you your money back plus postage. Fatima, Box 37, New York 1. Remember... Each king-size Fatima gives you an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Switch to Fatima today. Best of all, king-size cigarettes. Thursday, September 16th, 7.05 p.m., we continued talking to the missing woman's 17-year-old son, Bruce Abbott. As the interview went on, it became more and more obvious that the boy and his stepfather, Chester Abbott, didn't get along at all. Apparently, the boy was jealous of him, and he was jealous of the boy. Besides his prejudice, Bruce also contradicted himself during the course of the questioning. 7.15 p.m., the interview went on. I understand that, all right, son, but you say you can't think of any reason why your father would be out working in the nursery plots that time of night? No, sir, I can't. I don't know how he'd get any work done. None of the plots are even lighted, only the greenhouses. Well, is it possible he could have gotten that mud on his shoes working in one of the greenhouses? No, sir, I don't see how. All the paths in the greenhouses are gravel. It's my job to see they're kept gravel. I know they weren't muddy because I fixed them the day before. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think it means, Bruce? I don't know. I don't want to think about it. I just know he's done something. He's done something to her. Did your father, that is, your stepfather, give you any reason for keeping you away from the police officers that came to your house? I mean, the first two officers who showed up? No, he said people were getting nosy, that's all. Said it might be better for me over at my Aunt Helen's place. Mm-hmm. You think your Aunt Helen might know where your mother is? I don't think so. We hardly ever see Aunt Helen. We don't know her well at all. Well, do you know if your mother and stepfather argued very much, son? I mean, big arguments. Sometimes, yeah. Mostly about me. How do you mean? Chester's pretty tight, you know. Doesn't like to spend money at all. He and Mom used to argue about whether I ought to get paid for the work I did around the nursery. Chester didn't want to pay me. That's so? Yeah, when I started working, he promised he'd pay me. I was saving up to buy a 31 Model A. After a couple of weeks, when he didn't pay me, I asked him about it. He told me I ought to be glad to work for him for nothing. And your mother argued with him about that? Sure, she got good and mad, too. She should have gotten mad. It was her money that bought the nursery anyway. Well, how'd you happen to get away from your aunt's place, Bruce? wasn't too hard. Helen had some shopping to do, and she left me alone. She locked the door to my room. Even the screen over the window was nailed down, but I kicked it out and got away. I stayed at a friend's house last night. You thought much about where you're going to stay tonight, son? Well, I don't know. Sergeant Bergetti, I was talking to him. He asked me if I wanted to go out and have dinner and then stay at his house tonight. I don't know. Sounds like a good idea to me. I don't know. Sure nice of him to ask me. I think it'd be a lot better for you, son. Why don't you check in the next office, see if Bergetti's ready to leave, huh? Yeah. Okay, Sergeant, thanks. Sure, you betcha. Joe, what do you think? It's hard to say. He might be lying. Before we signed out of the office that night, we met with Captain Lorman and outlined a plan to bring in the husband of the missing woman for questioning alone. 
We figured it'd serve two purposes, clarify the boy's position in the case and determine one way or another if the stepfather was withholding information about the disappearance of Mrs. Abbott. The big problem was to bring in Chester Abbott for interrogation without the knowledge of his lawyer. As we'd found out more than once, it was impossible to get anything out of Abbott with his lawyer present. We set up a plan to call at the Abbott home early in the morning, get the suspect out of bed, and bring him in before his lawyer could be notified. At 3.30 the following morning, Ed and I met at the office and started for the Abbott place. We brought along a couple of pounds of fresh horse meat to keep the dogs quiet if they raised a fuss. At 10 minutes past 4 a.m., we parked our car a few hundred feet down the road from the Abbott nursery and made our way toward the gate. I reached in and tried the latch. The dog started up. How about it, Joe? Open? No, it's padlocked. We're going to have to climb the fence. Toss some of that meat over to him, will you? Yeah, okay. There. All right, that does it. All right, let's climb the fence. Keep an eye on the hounds. Looks like they can take a leg off. Yeah. Take it easy, Ed. All right. Watch out. Yeah. Here comes that other dog. Get some more of that meat, man. Yeah. There you are, boy. Go get it. Go on. All right, that's fine. Come on, let's hurry. Have a look, Joe. Right. Windows along the side of the house. Lights just went on. Yeah, come on. All right. Who is it? I'll set the dogs on you. Police officers, Abbott. Friday and Jacobs. What kind of business is this? What are you doing out here this time of night? You're under arrest, Mr. Abbott. What are you talking about? I think you heard me. You're under arrest. What kind of crazy thing is this? You're going to pay for this. I'll have your job. Right, you want to get your coat? You cops are asking for a pack of trouble. You know that. Get your coat. I'd like to know what you think you're doing. Where's my stepson anyway? What have you done with him? I got a better one for you, mister. Huh? What have you done with your wife? 4.25 a.m. Ed and I drove the suspect, Chester Abbott, back downtown to the office. He was quiet and sullen. We headed down the hall for the squad room. Light's still burning in the office. Yeah, probably by Getty standing by. All right, Abbott, in there. You're going to pay for this. You can take my word on that. Ed, you want to take him in the office here and stay with him? I'll check with Al. Okay. All right, Abbott, inside. Joe, you bring him in? Yeah, he's next door. Ed's with him. Tough. Somebody must have seen you. No, I don't think so. They must have. Why? What do you mean? Abbott's lawyer. He's sitting in the next room. How the lawyer had been notified, we couldn't be sure. Again, we tried to question Abbott, and again, on the advice of his attorney, he refused to answer practically every question we put to him. We released him. That day, Captain Lorman assigned two men to stake out on the nursery and report on all of Chester Abbott's movements. A little after 7 p.m., just after nightfall, we tried again to bring the suspect in for questioning without his lawyer's knowledge. It didn't work. The men assigned to stake out in the Abbott place reported definitely that someone was tipping off the attorney whenever unknown visitors showed up at the nursery and drove off together with Mr. Abbott. There was nothing we could do about it. The following morning, Al Bargetti came up with a lead. Had a long talk with the boy last night. Think he came up with a pretty fair lead. How's that? The old man's responsible. We know there's only one way we'll get a conviction. Yeah. Find the body and enough evidence to tie him in. Yeah, well, where do we start looking? In a new rose bed. It's next to one of the greenhouses in Abbott's nursery. Boy tell you this? Yeah, seems to make sense. We know old man Abbott's crazy about saving a dollar. We found that out from the neighbors and the relatives. Mm-hmm. On the nursery trade, especially in the limited area Abbott has to work in, you cultivate every foot of ground you have. You plant every foot of soil with something. Well, yeah, what's the point? Well, Abbott's not the type to waste anything. He wouldn't let ground lie fallow when he could plant something that might bring in a few dollars next spring. Mm-hmm. Bruce tells me his stepfather has every inch of the property planted with something. Everything except the six-by-eight plot of ground in that rose garden. 
Well, what did the boy say? The plot been vacant for a long? Well, he says his stepfather got it ready for planning a week and a half ago. It's still vacant. Be worth checking out. How do we do it? We can order up a crew from the crime lab. They can take probings through the plot all around it. They ought to be able to tell us how deep the ground's been worked over lately. Okay. What do you figure tonight? I think so, yeah. Maybe 11, 12 o'clock. What about old man Abbott? You think he's going to sit still for it? If the hunch pays off, he's going to sit still a long time. It was ten minutes past eleven that night when we got to the Abbott nursery. Lee Jones and the crime lab crew, Al Bargetti, Ed, and two other men from Homicide. The men on stakeout told us Chester Abbott, along with his attorney, had left the house a half hour before in his car, a dark blue coupe. They hadn't returned. Ed brought along another supply of fresh horse meat for the dog, so we didn't have any trouble there. We located the vacant plot of ground in the rose bed next to one of the greenhouses, as Bruce Abbott had described it to Bargetti. The crime lab crew started probing. The ground, obviously, had been worked over recently, and to some depth, they started digging. Anderson, get that light over here, will you? Thanks. Joe, see anything? No. Let's keep digging. It's right over here. Yeah. You know, this is it. He wasn't taking any chances. Down a good four or five feet now, wouldn't you say? Yeah, at least that. Anderson, more light, huh? All right, let's go at it. All right, wait a minute. Yeah. Woman's shoe here. Come on. Just a minute. Yeah, that's it. Shoulder there, it's a body. Well, it paid off, Al. The boy had it figured. Yeah, too bad he was right. Ed and I went back to our car and notified communications to broadcast a warrant for murder on Chester Abbott. His description, together with the description of his car and license number, was rebroadcast every 15 minutes. The attorney was contacted, and he stated that Mr. Abbott had dropped him off at his home more than an hour before. He knew nothing of his whereabouts. Ed and I went back to check the Abbott home and found the front door unlocked. We went inside and looked around. In one bedroom, we found clothes scattered over the bed and on the floor. There was only one old suit left in one closet. On the table next to the bed, we found an airline's timetable. We got to the phone and notified communications to alert all special details at railroad stations, bus terminals, and airports, and then to get out an APB. After that, we checked with the airlines. One of them told us a man answering Abbott's description had booked passage to Mexico City that night under the name of Charles Frazier. The plane was scheduled to leave at 1.52 a.m. at the Burbank Airport. We called the detail at the airport and alerted them. Then we drove over to the field to follow through on it. It was 1.32 a.m. when Ed and I took up our positions just inside Gate 3, where passengers were boarding Flight 72 for Mexico City. There was no sign of the suspect either on the plane or in the waiting room. Thank you, Shell. I don't know. Watch your bag over here. Where's Bargetti? Over there by the cocktail line. See him? Oh, yeah. What time you got now? 1.38. Plane's due to take off in another four minutes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Any sign of him, Al? No, nothing. Just made the rounds. Check with Stevens and Cummings. If he got in, he came in somebody's suitcase. Couldn't have possibly gotten through without one of us seeing it. Well, well, he hasn't got much more time. Maybe it's a dead end, huh? You don't see how he could have gotten wise, do you? Over there. No, no, by the ticket counter there. You see him? Yeah, that's him. Come on. Right. 
All right, just a minute, Abbott. I haven't got time now. I'll miss my plane. If you have anything more to say to me, you can wait till I get back. Right now, Abbott. And take it up with my lawyer. I'm in a hurry. We found your wife's body. How's that? In the rose bed next to the greenhouse. I don't know what you mean. You must be mistaken. No mistake. Hands behind your back. What's this all about? I haven't done anything. All right, let's go. No, just a minute. You got it wrong. I don't know anything about it. We think you do. Now, come on. Wasn't my fault. I didn't know what I was doing. I plead insanity. She drove me to it. We were arguing about the boy and she slapped me. I didn't mean to do it. All right, let's go, Abbott. Can you wait just a minute more? What for? My plane. One from Mexico City. Funny, isn't it? What's that? I was so close. Just missed it. Not by more than one minute. No, you're wrong about that, Abbott. Just one minute, that's all. You missed it before you ever bought your ticket. How do you figure? When you first decided to kill your wife. Come on. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 19th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, I'm holding two sets of fingerprint cards. Now, on one, prints found at the scene of a crime. On the second, a suspect's taken from the files. Now, the only way in the world you can tell they're made by the same suspect is by comparison. If you'll compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette, you'll find... Fatima's length filters the smoke, 85 millimeters, for your protection. Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs, 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And you get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Prove it today. Buy Fatima. Chester Vernon Abbott was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. The jury failed to recommend clemency. Abbott was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, and Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Barney Phillips and Herb Ellis. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Fatima Cigarettes. Best of all, king-size cigarettes has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Now it's Counter Spy on NBC.